Um, before I want to jump into this, today's message, I do want to review a little bit of last week. I, I feel like in this series, as we're just tiptoeing in, uh, there's a sense of a holy fear that resonates in my heart that's combating my human fear of just, I would say, the different views that people hold strongly that come from the world. And we've lived in the world our whole entire life, so we're familiar with what the world has taught us from day one, you know, from our parents, from the preschool, from the schools that were indoctrinated. And, and <clears throat> the interesting thing with what we've been indoctrinated, some things have been good biblical truth, and some things not so good, not so biblical, and definitely not the truth. So we are all in some ways mixed bags. Some of us are mixed bags that are more mixed with God's truth, and some of us are mixed bags with more of the truth, or not really the truth, the lies of this world. But we're all varying degrees of mixed bags, to be honest. Um, But the whole goal that we're moving toward is we want to have the mind of Christ. We want to know the Word of God, and we want to know it for what it says at face value. And so um, I, as we walk into this series a little bit more, um, you know, I'm literally fighting myself. I literally grew up in a Catholic tradition. I recognize a little bit was good, but most of it was unbiblical. A lot of human tradition there. And I, I also recognize as a new believer, I grew up in a lot of a, a Baptistic and Reformed traditions. And some of it's very good, but some of it is this tradition. And so I want to drive myself and you and I all the way back to the Word of God. Um, There are certain theories and movements going on today, and they claim to know this is what life is about in terms of race or in terms of what a man is or a human being is. Um, We have experts that have the DR in front of their name, and they think we can alter who we are by giving us different drugs and changing you from one gender to another gender. We don't have that authority to do that. And so with all these situations, I want to drive us and move us and point us back to the Word of God. And so <clears throat> last week, I taught us and reminded myself of a, a concept called verbal plenary inspiration. And so I want to remind us of these two verses, and, <clears throat> and we'll use that as our introduction to today's message. I want to plug one book before we go into. Um, This is a book called Living by the Book. It's very simple. It's written at like probably junior high or high school level. And it basically talks about how to study God's Word. It's written by Howard Hendricks, distinguished professor. I'm not even sure if he's alive still, but known at Dallas and known this book has been used in many seminaries um, and Bible colleges all over the place. Um, Have you guys heard of this guy? Some, maybe not. Yeah, he's passed away. I've listened and read a lot of his stuff. When I was in my 20s, my pastors that I had that were in their 50s and 60s were trained under this guy. And so now there's two generations removed is kind of what's happened. And so this generation, a lot of you guys listen to Dave Platt and Stephen DeYoung, young guys that are my age in their 40s, but I guess we're considered old guys now. Um, However that works, from one generation to the next. But let me remind you of these two verses and remind you of verbal plenary inspiration, and then we'll talk about how to cut God's word straight. So, first, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God, <coughs> is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the main thing I focused on last time is all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is breathed out by God. And two ideas come out of that, is that God's Word is God-given and God-breathed. The Word of God (coughs) comes from God Himself, and was given to men, and we'll see how that was done in Second Peter chapter one, verses nineteen and twenty-one. For we have a the more prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the dawn, the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing the first, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoken from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is my summary of last week in one kind of paragraph sentence. (laughs) It's a run-on sentence. The entire full, complete Bible is God-breathed, God-given, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Bible is infallible and errant because God himself is a God of truth. Therefore, he gives us a true word of God that's infallible and without error. And so this <clears throat> pertains to everything in the contents of Scripture, the doctrine, the history, the geography, the dates and names, everything in Scripture, every single phrase, every single word, including the grammar, even to the tiniest dot and Tito that we looked at, the, both the Hebrew and Greek last week, the, down to the punctuation, um, is inspired by God. We have a trustworthy word. So each word is written, written in the Bible exactly and specifically what God chose to use. And so because God has given us his scripture, a verbal plenary inspiration, that demands that we what? have a solid hermeneutic, a faithful way to approach God's Word, or today's title, which is how can we faithfully cut God's Word straight? How can we faithfully cut God's Word straight? And that's the hope here. If God's Word is authoritative, we want to understand what it means, how to interpret it, and how to apply it to our lives. And so what does the word hermeneutic mean? Uh, hermeneutics is a, a long word which refers to the science and the art. The science and the art of understanding, translating, interpreting, and explaining the meaning of Scripture. That's what hermeneutics is. And the key, there's a couple key verses, but the one that stands out to me the most is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It's interesting. We keep coming to 2 Timothy. The scriptures from 2 Timothy, uh, this verse is from 2 Timothy. The big thing about 2 Timothy is there's 1 Timothy, there's training <coughs> that Paul is trying to give, convey and give to Timothy. And there's 2 Timothy where, hey, Paul's life is coming to an end. I'm trying to give you, the, Paul's trying to give Timothy the most important, most urgent, most pertinent things to download to his pastoral um, trainee. And, and the, another thing that he wants to remind him besides that scripture is God-breathed and infallible is the fact that he wants Timothy to be 
well-trained in this way. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth of, excuse me, the word of truth, or rightly dividing the word of truth, or rightly cutting the word of truth. There's just different translations here. And so the idea here, when you look at this phrase, rightly handling, or rightly cutting, or rightly dividing, comes from a carpentry term. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried to put in your own carpet at your own house, or try to put in tile. It's, it's not easy, and you need a special skill to do that, and special cutting devices to cut God's word. But you just think about carpet or tile. If you don't cut your tile or brick right, and it's all misfit, it looks terrible. It doesn't build, <coughs> build your structure or your flooring right. In the same way, Paul is encouraging, he's exhorting, he's admonishing, Timothy, to do the same thing, as you think of architecture and cutting bricks um, <clears throat> right to, to, to be rightly fitted for a building, Paul is exhorting and commanding Timothy to cut God's word straight so that what? Human beings, Christians, Christ's church would be built up in the right way. And so this morning I have several objectives, but I want to remind you, like, as I'm just going through one message, 40 minutes of hermeneutics, really, to do justice, you need a semester or two semester or maybe a whole lifetime. So, but I want to give you these hermeneutics, these principles, as key before we dive into the actual text of Genesis. So we're playing and understanding how do we read God's Word, how do we understand God's Word, and as we even give, give you the rules of hermeneutics, We'll look at some parts of Genesis right away as, as study cases as we walk into this together. So um, I'm going to teach you Genesis at the same time, teach you the basics of hermeneutics. But really, the basics of hermeneutics will take you a long ways. Um, just like I would say, if you understand basketball, you understand how to shoot, you understand how to pass, you understand how to dribble, it will take you a long ways. Just the basics of hermeneutics will go a long ways to understanding the book of Genesis. So... Three objectives today. I want to present to you four major ways of interpretations that are that four major ways the church interprets the Bible today, and we only use I believe one of them is the best and most faithful. The others I'm just introducing to you concepts to you. Then I'm gonna look at we're gonna look at three major dangers of interpretation, and then I'm gonna introduce you to hermeneutics or the OIA method of interpreting God's Word. And so, <clears throat> let's begin with the first four major ways that God's Word is interpreted. The first one is the allegorical method. The allegorical method interprets the Bible narrative as having second level of inference beyond the person, things, and events explicitly mentioned in the Scripture. They believe that there's this additional knowledge that is beyond what's said there at face value. Um, this is subjective. A lot of times people want to interject um, their own feelings, their own tradition, or just what they want to see in Scripture. I think the best thing to do is stay at level one. What does the Bible say at face value in the most normal sense? So we, 
that's the first one I just want to introduce you. I don't agree with the allegorical method. Um, it's dangerous, and it can lead into strange places. A lot of times the allegorical method will focus things, a lot of times on numbers, like anywhere it says three, you think of Trinity, you think of anything, you think of about three, or you think of seven, and you're thinking all these other random things that deal with seven. And so that's a little bit of the allegorical method. Another method that's often used is the rationalistic method, or it's also known as a higher critical method. It also came about during the age of reason in terms of history. This method focuses on man's uh, brain, human reasoning, human logic, human science. And many liberal churches embrace this uh, methodology. And many times uh, when you use the rationalistic logic method, um, it rejects any notion that of divine miracles or divine work. So when it thinks of like changing the water and wine, the whole idea would reject any idea that no water can be intimated in the wine. When it thinks of the resurrection, no way someone can raise from the dead. So to do everything it possibly can to reject res resurrection. When it thinks of creation, no way you know, can you embrace anything like creation, etc. So that's the rational method. It's just to reject, any reject anything that's divine that would be attributed to God. Everything needs to be humanized. Um, the third one that we would reject, but I'll just put it out there, would be the traditional method. This is basically you interpret scripture from tradition. So if you come from a Catholic tradition or Lutheran or uh, Pentecostal or Baptistic or even Methodist, some of these traditions have some good stuff because they built their doctrine off of scripture, but some of these traditions have built a lot of stuff off their own human ideas, what they want. And so... Traditional method is dangerous because basically they read scripture to what? Constantly support their tradition. We don't want to do that. We want the scripture for what it says. And I was praying earlier today with the guys. We want God's what? Pure milk of God's word. We don't want the chocolate milk. We don't want the latte. We don't want the strawberry milk, whatever. We want God's word straight up, right? Straight from the cow, straight from the Lord, all right? Straight from the Holy Spirit. We want it straight. Um, so, I would want to present um, this method, a historical grammatical approach to the scripture that reads God's word um, in the normal sense at face value, taking account figure, speech, grammar, historical background, and genre. So that's the approach that I would affirm that makes the most sense, that reads scripture for what it says and allows us to get to God's intent. And I don't, we'll look at this more. But when you study God's word, the name of the game is to understand the meaning, the authorial intent of the passage. I don't believe as you read God's word, there's multiple meanings. There's one specific interpretation and many applications. One interpretation and many applications. And we need to be able to distinguish the difference, and we'll, I'll help you as much as I can through that. But one interpretation and many applications, Okay. And even with many applications, there's some there's cultural appropriateness because we want to fit cultural appropriateness. Like when I say, let's worship God, uh, that can have a lot of ways that looks like. Clearly, it's focused on God, but it may have a different cultural expression. Like, for example, I don't know, getting me on a tangent. I'm getting myself on a tangent. When we take Holy Communion, we buy these things from whatever, these little wafers that taste terrible like styrofoam paper. 
I mean, a cultural context, it could be a grain of rice somewhere. It could be a tortilla somewhere, whatever that represents bread-like substance. But we, the whole point is more, what, the meaning, right? And the symbolism that we're going after when it comes to communion. Anyways, that's a sidebar in terms of application. Um, three dangers, I'm, I'm putting all this stuff before how do we interpret God's word first, but three dangers, uh, three dangers of interpreting God's word. And I just want to put these three up front and I've kind of tiptoed into them a little bit right there, but you'll see them on the screen. Danger number one that I want you to be aware of is this, um, is to build an opinion of the Bible through the lens of preconceived notion, okay? It's easy to have a preconceived notion about salvation or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or who Christ is, and then you have your idea in your head, and then you look for it in Scripture, okay? We want to go to a place where we study God's Scripture and <clears throat> we build our theology upon that, all right? So this is, this is dangerous. Like, sometimes we get preconceived notion by watching a lot of maybe TV or, or it just in your mind, I just want to believe these things. I mean, you got to understand my view of what spirit stuff was, I don't know, predicated on all these different things I watched on TV. Casper the Friendly Ghost, um, the ghost movie, all right? Those are my views of the spirit world until I thought, okay, what does the scripture actually say about ghosts and demons and spirits and stuff like that? So we got to deal with our own preconceived, uh, <coughs> preconceived notions. The second one is similar to, and I've kind of walked into it already, is to build an opinion of the Bible through the lens of one's of someone else's belief. And so I'm going to hit a lot of different things um, here. There, you may have a favorite preacher, and I have mine. I try to pick the ones that hold God's word at a high regard, that teach God's word, and that's the one you want. But the, even human preachers and pastors and theologians are, are fallible. Um, you may hear a lot of truth from your parents, and praise God for all the good, solid truth that your parents give. But even as, as well, I think I'm solid. I know, you know, there's times I've given my kids some bad truth, you know. Maybe I picked it up from TV or my emotions say, just say this to the kid, all right, and so, to just deal with, you know, their fussing or whining. And you're just giving them garbage at that moment. Um, <clears throat> and so maybe you picked up um, someone else's belief from social media from movies, TV, whatever. Um, you don't want to read God's scripture from other person's beliefs. You want to begin again with scriptures itself. And the last one sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> some people speak very passionately without even opening God's scripture. Um, but th this one is to build an opinion of the Bible without opening the Bible. Some people have all these ideas of what they think, like cleanliness is next to godliness. Isn't that a scripture? That's my mantra. That's not, that's not even found in Scripture, but people run around saying this stuff. Um, and the idea that oh, we just need to be clean and have a nice, tidy house. Sorry, my friend, that's not in Scripture. Um, so there's other things that I could bring up um, in that some people, I don't even want to go there. We'll just keep moving. So my whole point is, brothers and sisters, we need to go back to Scripture. Scripture 
is king. Before systematic theology, before practical theology, it's that scripture is king. It comes first. And so I want you to know, not the Christian lingo, not the Christian fluff, not just kind of what you think Gary would say or your parents would say. Know what the scripture says. So in order to do that, you have to open your Bibles. Okay? Um, when it comes to Genesis, a lot of people believe a lot of the things out there but not what's in the scriptures. Because what? The Satan has done a number on a number of people to get them to think what Satan wants them to think. To the point, it's in all the major public schools. They'll indoctrinate you in their system. All right? It's in NC State. It's big time in Duke. It's in, it's in you know, all the UNC system. It's just there. I used to pastor next to Berkeley, and I said, this is clearly your mantra and your Bible that they've indoctrinated you in. Um, and that's why you believe what you want to believe. But is it in Scripture? All right? And so um, motivation, I'll give you a little bit more motivation, and then we'll jump into this method. Motivation for faithfully cutting God's Word straight. D.L. Moody said this, the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. John Bunyan says, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Such similar quotes. I just thought it was so funny. But they both, read, they both <laughs> put them out there. So the big money question is, how can we be faithful to cut, divide, and apply God's word? How can we cut it straight? How can we honor God through our hermeneutics? And my caveat here, before we jump into it, is one more thing. Um, this is what I want to put out there because I know this could be spicy. I know you want to throw rocks at me at times. I just know this is the way we are. Um, and I just wanted to lay this out in the best way possible. This is what I've been ruminating on. And I believe Christ would have this for his community and church. Is this three-step concept. It's not even a step. But the first one is orthodox doctrine. The second one is gospel culture and lasting friendships. This weighs heavily on me in this season. As a, as a church, most churches faithfully want, we want orthodox doctrine, right, straight doctrine. Ortho, like orthodontist, you want straight teeth, you want straight doctrine. And we want to align to God's word. That's our human thing. But in this endeavor, we have our personality, we have our capacity to learn, we have those who learn faster than others, we have different stages of growth and maturity. The whole coming, bring, bringing in Orthodox doctrine is kind of an awkward process, but we're called to do so as a group and community. But I, I want to take that and wrap a gospel culture in it. We're going to learn at different paces. We're called to exercise um, patience with each other. <clears throat> in light of the gospel, there's nothing we contributed to our salvation except for our own sin. Jesus mercifully saved us. What we know is because of God. What we understand is because we got, because of God. What we're able to comprehend, explain, is because of God. And so because it's because of God, and he reveals and helps us understand at different paces and different timelines and different revelation and brain capacity, I want to call us to a gospel culture that we would give patience to each other in our understanding. Some people may be dead wrong, but we're called to give patience to them. Some people may think they're right on and they're passionate about it, but they could be slightly off. And those who are right on, to carry your doctrine with a sense of grace and humility, not pounding people with it. 
And so a culture of grace. And as we grow as a church, my hope is if we do so with doctrine and with gospel together, that long-lasting friendships would grow out of it in the long haul. Authentic friendships. Not friendships that are shallow based on like a few doctrines or the fact we all like a certain coffee or, I don't know, we dress a certain way or we got the same TikTok dance or whatever. Um, I'm throwing out goofy stuff because it is goofy sometimes. This is important that in this sense, Christ sacrificed big time for us that we would learn how to sacrifice big time for each other to allow for patience, to allow for understanding, to allow for, for growth. And it's convicted me there are times I need to exercise more patience. There's some times that I'm just like, oh, I'm just too tired to talk to this person because whatever. But if I know someone's going the wrong way that needs correction, and if someone's going really the wrong way that needs rebuke, and I, not, if, I, I literally have to ask myself constantly, do I love this enough, person enough to care for them, to steer them in the right direction? That's what I deal with daily. Um, and so, so this is necessary for the first generation to embrace so that the growing generation, our kids and future people in life at the church could understand the solidarity that's developed, the type <coughs> of way we, we go through growing together as a learning community in what I'll call a, a humble orthodoxy that we take in God's truth, we relate to each other humbly, and we, we learn and grow together. I think the knee-jerk concept has been too quick in this last year or two to kick things too quickly, and the community has fragmented without, without much real discussion, um, real love, real understanding and breaking things apart. And so it just takes time. And one way we give time is a, a form of love. And so there you go. You have my caveat. So you know, feel free. I'm open to discussion. I could be wrong in certain areas. I may need correction. Guess what? You may need correction. You may, you may be growing up in a whole system that's pretty off and may need a lot of correction. Some of us may just need a little bit of adjustment. Um, but let's open up. Let's not have to feel like we have to tip down around. We need to grow on another level of love as a church that we could talk about these things in a normal way. We don't need to be awkward about this kind of stuff. Um, you guys understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah? All right. This is big stuff. It's hard to talk about, um, but here we go. OIA method, um, real basics of hermeneutics. Here it comes. Three concepts, O, I, and A. O is observation. What do I see in the text? This is basically what you're asking. I is what does the text mean? Application, what or how does a singular... <coughs> How does this singular meaning apply to my life and the church? Yes, feel free to take pictures of the slides or I can email them to you. What does it mean to observe the text? What does it mean to observe the text? The basic idea of observing the text is to make like a crime scene detective. You can see in the picture. A crime scene detective goes on the scene and he's asking a lot of questions. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? What's the motive? Where, when? They ask a lot of questions about the scene of the crime. So when you come to God's text, you want to ask and put a ton of questions. What does the text say? Not what do I want to see in the text? Not, not what Luther or Zwingli or MacArthur or 
Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis or whoever says in the text. No, what does the text say? Okay, you want to see that. The second way, a second picture of how to look at God's text is maybe think of yourself as a counterfeit fraud or bill specialist. Okay, so if you look at this little picture quickly, you can see all the key aspects of what to look for in a $100 bill to know if it's counterfeit or not. And so I want you guys to know God's word so well when you come up to false church history and false doctrine, you're able to spot it out quickly because you know God's word so well. I'm in seminary and Bible college. They teach us church history for a reason because everything in church history has happened and it basically will repeat itself again and again and again over in different names and different forms. But by seeing 2,000 years of church history, it helps you to assess, help you discern what? what good doctrine and bad doctrine looks like. And so that's why we learn church history. And so whatever comes forth in the future, it may have a different name to it, but the main point is what? You're able to learn from church history. But the main point I want to drive you again is what does the scripture say? So what does it mean to faithfully study God's word? Is to what? Look at God's (coughs) word and look for the following things. What are repeated words? What are key words? Um, ask a lot of questions about the text. Um, just write them down on what are cross-references. We, we believe in a concept that the Bible is the best commentary to itself. And ask who, what, where, why, and how of the question. So if you have your Bibles, which hopefully you have electronic or paper version, come with me to Genesis chapter 1. And so I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 all the way to... 31, and just kind of get a feel of the key words that are repeated over and over and over and over and over. And you'll get an idea of what Genesis chapter 1. We're not trying to interpret this. We're literally going to take two months to cover chapter 1, and then, and then chapter 2, we'll do two or three messages, and then chapter 3, one or two messages. But chapter 1, I want to spend a lot of time on. So as you're looking at chapter 1, what word comes out to you a lot over and over as you just kind of look at that first value? So I'm asking the question, who? Who do we see constantly in Genesis chapter 1? God. How many times? A lot, right? Almost every verse says God, 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 right? At least every, some verses says God two or even three times in that one particular verse. So it's a big deal. We want to know something about God. Um, so next week's message, before we get into the text, is entitled, In the Beginning, God. You want to know what I'm preaching on next week? God, all right? Because that's what Genesis chapter 1 is about. We're going to talk about God. In the beginning, God. And so what is the other thing we see in this passage, asking the question, who? Any other who's in this question? We see what? Verse 25, 26, we see what? 27. Adam and Eve, right? Man and woman. That's another who. Okay, where does this take place? Can you guys figure that out? In the garden, a pre-garden, Mesopotamia. What else? What other where do we see? The heavens and the earth. And what else do we see here in terms of where? I'm asking the basic where, when, why, how. The observation questions here. Sea, sky, okay. Earth stuff, sky stuff. Verse 1, what do we see? Where, where does that take place? In the beginning, eternity past, right? Or previous. Okay? Yeah, it's kind of strange. So that's, a, that's who on the base, basic um, observation, where, how and what do we see going on here? What kind of verbs do we see going on? 
over and over. Phrases. Rachel, create, made. Rachel, what did you say? God said. God said a lot. And when he said, what happened? It happened. He made stuff when he spoke. He had powerful words, right? So that phrase is there over and over. God said, God said, God said. And then he said, let. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. So those are the key things I see over and over in this passage. God created, God made, God said, and God said, let there. And then when did this happen? We kind of tiptoed on this, on what eternity passed, and then it also happened when? Day, 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 day. Six days, right, of creation. That's all we see at face value, right? I don't see any millions, billions, trillions of years in this text. I just don't see it. You can see it if you, what, impose what you see from the university and scribble it into your scriptures or something like that. But it's not there in our text, our Genesis. It's not there. So that's what I'm talking about, those dangers earlier that we often do. Um, this is dangerous. In terms of why, who, what, when, why, what, what do you see in terms of why in this text? This is a little bit more trickier. Why was it, what's happening? What are some of the whys? What is God trying to set up? What's good? He declares, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. That's good. So in one sense, it says what glorifies God, kind of in the broader sense, right? It also says why about males and females. We are to what? Image God, right, as his creation. Yeah. What are you saying, Mike? To multiply and be faithful. That comes there, too. So that's a little bit there. I'm going to press on. So that's a basic observation, asking who, what, what, where, why, and how of the text, asking questions of the text, primary source for the Christian, primary milk for the Christian food. Um, I'm going to give you some basic information really quickly. The title of Genesis <coughs> is Genesis. Um, it's, it's, it speaks of the idea of origins. Or, or the beginnings. The author of this book doesn't declare himself in the book of Genesis, but there are, I don't know, 20 different passages in the Old and New Testament that point to Moses as the author of the book of Genesis. And I'll give you a, few on the, a couple on the screen. In the Old Testament, we see in Joshua chapter 8, verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, um, referring to the book of Genesis, actually the, all the, the Pentateuch, that would be what? First five books of the Bible. Okay, And then we also see in Mark 12, verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the... <coughs> In the passage about the bush, God spoke to him saying, I am God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. These three guys were all found in the book of Genesis. So um, by that understanding, we believe that um, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Um, on top of that, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. 
Moses had all the necessary background to, read, to write the first five books of the Bible. It says here in Acts 7.22, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his word and deed. So there's a little bit about the author of the book of Genesis. Uh, more historical background, we touched on this stuff. The initial setting is the eternity past, and God's book made the heavens and the earth. There's more of the background. Um, when was this book written? It's hard to pinpoint the exact date, but we know, um, or the ha- exact historical moment. Some of the other letters, especially the epistles in the New Testament, we come to it more quickly. But I, we know this for the most part. Um, Israel's first, Israel first heard Genesis sometime um, prior to the crossing of the Jordan River and entering into the Promised Land at 4405 B.C., um, so I'm just giving you more details to Genesis. This is kind of how we break down scriptures, is understanding some of the background. Genesis has three distinct, three geographical settings, Mesopotamia, the Promised Land, and Egypt. We can look at it from a time frame. You see that in, on the screen, creation in the 2090 to 1897 B.C., and then 18, I don't, you don't, I don't, I'm not used to reading dates like this, but 1897 to 1804 B.C., we also see a basic outline as you look at the book of Genesis, the, the primitive history from Genesis 1 through 11, and then a patriarchal history from 12 through 50. Another way you can look at Genesis is major events, creation, fall, flood, dispersion. Um, another way you can understand Genesis is through the main men, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I say this for a couple reasons. There's different ways to break down how to look at Genesis and as God unfolds this book. Um, I also want you to understand Genesis, the time that it was written to write the book of Genesis covers more time than the rest of the books combined from Exodus all the way to Revelation, which is interesting. So I'll stop there. All I want to say here is this is basic understanding and it has all to do with what? O observation. We're just trying to look at Genesis as we study chapter 1. What does it say there? And try to understand it in light of all of Genesis 1 through 50, okay? So that's your first concept in eight minutes, observation, all right? Um, next concept will take a little longer, interpretation. What does a text mean? And I'm going to leave the least amount of time for application. Interpretation is the biggest thing to wrap our mind around. Interpretation. So I'm going to give you interpretation rules, interpretation tools. We're going to spend the most time on the rules, and I'll just introduce you to some tools. Okay? So I'm going to give you five interpretive rules that govern sound biblical hermeneutics. Okay? Five general interpretive rules. The first one is this. Principle number one. Interpretation must be based on the author's intent a meaning, not the reader. A lot of times as a reader, we just want to read what we want to see. I mean, sometimes I used to do that. Where's the scripture that supports my idea, my view? Okay? No, the name of the game is to understand what the author was intending to communicate at that time when it was written to the people it was written to. And so, um, there's a lot of barriers we need to jump with grammar, culture, and history from our understanding culture and grammar to their understanding of culture and grammar and that cultural contact in which it was written. Then we could draw it over principally how that is to apply to our generation. But principle number one, interpretation must be based on the author's intention. Principle number two, interpretation must be done 
in the context of the passage. Okay, I want you to know, if I give you one interpretation principle that's the most important is principle number two. Context is king. It is huge to understand the context of the passage and to define the meaning of the words from the near context. It's dangerous to say, hey, let's run to when Moses talked about this in Leviticus or whatever. No, stay with the near context before running to Moses there. And before you run to the New Testament, that's this way broad context. All Bible will support itself. But begin with the near context, then the broad, and then the broader context. But the near context will, most time, 99.9% of the time, help you with understanding the meaning of the words. And you'll see why. Uh, But I want you to understand that context is king. And I'm just going to tease it out in this basic way. What does the following mean? It was a ball. Okay? Context is king. The umpire saw a pitch outside the strike zone, and he called it a ball. All right? Um, I, I went to a dance last night. It was a formal dance, and it was a ball. Okay? I went on the golf course, and I saw this white small thing in the grass. It was a ball. Okay? Um, I had so much fun at the game night last night with my church friends, and I said, you know, it was a ball, okay? This ball used B-A-L-L, four or five different contexts, means five different things, okay? Um, But context is key, what? In determining the meaning. Um, And so the weight of near context weighs really heavy as we interpret and understand Scripture, so Ken Ham says this. He says, perhaps no principle, perhaps no principle of interpretation is more universally agreed upon than the idea that the understanding that context, that the context of the word, phrase, and passage is absolutely essential. Context is defined as the parts of the discourse that surround the word or passage that could, <coughs> that can throw light on its meaning. And <coughs> So many other theologians would agree on this idea. So context is king, my friend. And so I just want to walk you through the basic context of Genesis chapter 1. We just looked at it. We saw key phrases, God spoke, you know, and let, let there be fill in the blank. As I'm looking through this, I just want to <coughs> point out the fact that the six days of creation happened on the six days of creation. Day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And six. And so as you look through the Bible with me, let's try to define day in the context of Scripture. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, you see the first day. And the author decided to say, and there was evening and morning. On planet Jupiter? Saturn? Neptune? No. Evening and morning took place on what? Planet Earth. This human beings were created on the Earth, Genesis 1 and 2. And they were placed on planet Earth, not some other planet where you have different kind of days and mornings. We're talking about evening and morning on day one. Okay, so let's jump to verse eight. Second day, and there was what? Evening and morning. Verse 13. Third day, and there was evening and morning. Verse 19. Fourth day, there was evening and morning. Uh, Verse 23. Fifth day, and there was evening and morning. Uh, Fifth, the sixth day, fifth day, what does this go to the sixth day? Genesis 31, 31. 
He said it was what? Very good, and there was evening and morning. So if you were just looking at this as any kind of human being on planet Earth, and you see evening and morning, and you think through the days, how long do you think this day is? It doesn't say 24 hours, but you know it has what? Morning and evening, right? I don't see 24 hours. It may be. I think it does. But, I mean, we just know there's evening and morning according to the text, all right? According to, I don't see 24 hours. I'll concede that. <laughs> but does it, if it doesn't say 24 hours, does it also mean millions and billions and trillions? It doesn't say that either. But it does say evening and morning. We can all agree that because it said that, what, six times in this text, in the context. Can we agree upon that? Morning, evening. It doesn't say 20 hours explicitly, nor does it say millions of billions and trillions, for sure. I don't see that either. But it does say morning. I know I'm repeating myself, but I, you just need to understand, morning and evening is actually defining what day means in this context. All right? So, interpretive principle number three um, is this, is to interpret the Bible literally or normally, allowing for figures of speech as the language dictates that um, in terms of figures of speech, where it says like, like, or as, where metaphors and similes are used. And so I'm still kind of down this road of Genesis and what's the concept of day. And so we have this morning and evening concept. Some people will say, you know, Gary, I read in the New Testament in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, in my casual reading of the New Testament, it says, that day could mean thousands of years. And so let's understand 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. You have that or you see that? That's very important to understand. So, again, context is key. So this is not near context. This is not even broad context. This is on the other side of the Bible. It's not Moses writing 1 Peter or 2 Peter. It's Peter writing 1 Peter. But, yes, we do see a concept of day. So let's look at this one and see, see it for what it means in its context. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as, circle the word as, um, as a thousand years. It didn't say is a thousand years, it says as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So verse 9 is the context to understand verse 8. The Lord does not, excuse me, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in light of verse 8, how should we understand this concept of one day as a thousand years? It tells me what? The picture that he's talking about one day is that he's encouraging the people, don't be so impatient to what? Seeing people come to know the Lord. Understand that the Lord is what? Super patient. And he desires what? Many to come to faith. And he's, he's pushing this idea of day and a thousand years to understand God's divine, holy perspective on time. Not like our little human finite concept, his infinite concept of time where God has this infinite patience, his divine patience toward us. And so, again, context is king. You can't take this meaning 
and impose it into Genesis chapter 1 and have your idea of day. Are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? All right, people, this is big stuff. Um, so when like or as, when the language itself dictates a different kind of meaning of day, sure, we can have a different understanding of me. But in Genesis chapter 1, there's no like or as or no figure of speech in there. Um, in two weeks, I'm bringing a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm a Hebrew wannabe. You know, I have these computers that tell me what the Hebrew, Greek, and English look, and I could highlight them. They tell me. But we're going to bring a, a legit Hebrew scholar who can read Hebrew, speak Hebrew, and he's going to... I asked him to give us a syntactical analysis of Genesis chapter 1. So he's going to take the Hebrew, and he's going to help us to see it in English for all that it is. Okay? So that's what's happening then. So I have, like, wrestled real hard because I want you to see this for yourself. I don't want you to think, okay, Gary went to this type of seminary, and Gary likes this kind of denomination. You know, I could forget the seminary and forget the denomination. We want to know what King Jesus says, all right? This is most important. Principle number four, that's a nice transition, huh? Use the Bible to help the Bible interpret itself. It doesn't really need help, but the Bible interprets itself, and the Bible, guess what? It never contradicts itself, all right? The Bible interprets itself. We call it an analogy of faith, and it also never contradicts itself. There's one apparent contradiction. I'll just throw this one out to you quickly. But in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says we're not saved by works. But in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, it seems the idea that you need works to prove your salvation. Okay? There's just really two different perspectives of looking on salvation. And it's basically saying this. One, in Ephesians, you can't earn your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. And James is saying you work out your salvation. You're already saved, and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So one is, <clears throat> so you can't earn your salvation. Another one is saying, hey, I'm served, and this is how you show evidences of true salvation. You bear fruit. You do good works. So two different ways of looking at the same concept of work. But the context is key to understand the meaning. Once again, number five, be sensitive to the type of literature that you are in. There's law, there's history, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's gospel, there's parables, there's letters, epistles, and apocalyptic literature. For Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and all of Genesis, what kind of literature is this? Is it fictional? Is it mythology? Or is it history? And I want to answer this question right now. Um, and I don't want to give you my opinion. I'm going to go to Jesus, Luke, and Paul for this answer. And I believe all four of them believe it to be history. Reason number one, Adam himself regarded Adam and Eve as historical people. And <clears throat> Just look at Matthew um, 19 and 10. Um, the Gospel of Luke talks about the genealogy going from Jesus, tracking all the way back to Adam, and believed Adam was a myth. No Adam was a historical person in the genealogy. Another solid proof. I think this is one of the best ones. That Adam was a real human being that lived at one time and is a part of human history as the first man. Reason number three, Paul cites in the history the order of creation, as he talks about in the context of how a church is a function in relationship to men and women. But to support this, he goes to the order of creation. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve as human beings, as part of history. And there's many other verses. But these three alone clinch it for me. Three Bible people that we highly respect for every good reason 
affirm that Genesis is history. Okay? Um, so that's a little bit of interpretation. Five key interpretations. Um, there's other stuff like how do you understand the difference between Israel and the church and how do you apply the two. That's a whole other story I can't do today. But for the last few minutes, we'll talk about a few more interpretive tools. Um, one of them will be named uh, <laughs> Dr. Sigler, who talked do the grammatical analysis. Um, another one would be cross-reference. Genesis chapter 1-1 is kind of like John 1-1. They both say, in the beginning, in this case, was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and in the beginning, <clears throat> and he was in the beginning with God. Who's the word of God? Who's the, what's the word? It refers to Jesus. So we believe, I'll throw out another big doctrinal concept, in the eternal existence of God. In, particularly in the eternal existence of Jesus himself. Jesus existed eternally, but here's a cross-reference. I believe Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, the whole triune God, had a specific role, primary role, in creating the world. Um, compare Scripture with Scripture. That's another tool that we can use allow the Scripture to be its own commentary. You can you could consult. Um, <clears throat> another tool is consult different key tools, theological dictionaries. Not Oxford, not Webster, but theological dictionaries that help you to understand the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic language and terms. Consult biblical um, encyclopedias that help you with the background, custom, manners of that time. Not the Encyclopedia of Britannica. That is not going to help you. All right? Use biblical encyclopedias. There's, a, there's also another tool called a concordance where it puts a number, four or five digits, on key words. And so um, I, I looked up the concordance for beginning. And so it gives us a transliteration. It gives us a part, a speech that it comes from. And it gives us a basic definition, meaning first, beginning, best, chief, choice, part. Obviously, all those definitions doesn't fit in that context. But a concordance is another tool. Um, these are all wonderful tools that God has given us to understand his word. There's also commentaries. Guys who literally give their whole life, some people give their whole life to be a doctor in terms of like cardiology or immunology or whatever. Um, there are people that give themselves to the study of God's word and they write commentaries. And there's three major kinds. An exegetical commentary that looks at the word of God in a very technical sense, grammar, tenses, um, understanding the, the meaning of Hebrew and Greek <coughs> and the different you know how English could be used in different ways? Well, Hebrew and Greek has some of those different ideas, and they walk through. It could be option one, two, or three, and they'll give you their best conclusion. Interpretive Bibles do the same thing. They could say, hey, here's the view of this, and I'll give you five options, and here's the one I think it is because of A, B, and C. There's an expository. Uh, Bibles that seek to explain God's Word, interpret God's Word, and gives you some practical applications and illustrations toward understanding that passage. Um, other tools... Um, other tools would be computer software. Um, here are some of the best, I think. Logos, Accordance, Esquart, um, Olive Tree. The same things are found as apps. Um, also, there's online tools, Linear Bible, Bible Hub, Bible Study Tools, Gateway, and there's these various apps. You can take pictures of those if you like. But, and there's more. Um, these things should be on your phone and computers. Um, you literally, you know everything I can. Old school days, they, they ask you to buy $10,000 of books to have a decent pastoral library. 
<laughs> I buy Logos, put $1,000 in it. I have my $10,000 library now. So I'm like literally getting rid of books because I just want to use the Logos because it's easier to use. And I don't have all this paper and dust around the home. So that's that. Um, the last section is application. After I come to the primary meaning that it applies, and you've done your best to present yourself to God, one approved, a worker who does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How do you apply God's word? So it's one thing to know about God's word. It's a whole other thing to say, hey, I'm going to be transformed by God's word. And so these are a couple practical tools that I've looked, looked through as specs. As you come to your, your meaning, what does this tell me about the gospel? See the gospel. Is there a promise in this passage that needs to be kept? Is there an example to be followed? Or maybe a bad example not to be followed. A command to be obeyed. When you see the commands of scripture, those are things that God highlights a little further. Like, yes, we are to obey these commands. Is there a sin to forsake or a stumbling block to avoid? And so this, this is a little simple tool to think through application. Um, I like another way to ask the passage, how do we apply? Do I need a rebuke? Do I need a correct? Or how is this training me in righteousness? Um, for personal transformation, as I look at this passage, what does this need? To, what happens in my head, heart, and hands? What needs to change in my thinking, my understanding? Is there something in my heart idols in my heart um, that, that need to be repented of. I'll be real personal with you. The biggest thing I've been struggling with in this season is learning how to lament. I, I usually just rationalize and cerebralize everything in my mind, but I'm learning how to lament. As I've gone through hurt and anguish, how to lament, to be sad in a godly way. That's just a big thing that I'm trying to work through in my heart these days. How to be sad in a godly way. Sometimes I just say, oh, let's just push through it. No, I need to stop and be sad in a godly way. And so there are things in my life I'm just sad about, and I'm trying to have a godly perspective on my sadness and working it through my own heart. Hands, what is this calling me to do? How am I to act? What is my conduct, my behavior to look like in light of what the Scripture says? And then this is our mission, which is our great commission and great commandment put together. Enjoy, equip, and engage. What does this mean for the church? So that's it. Um, as you go to lunch and as we close out in a song, I want you to really, really think, what kind of theologian am I? Guess what? Every one of us is a theologian. Everyone handles God's truth. But the question is, what kind of theologian are you? Sloppy? Do you impose God, your doctrine, your ideas upon God's word? What kind are you? Are you faithful to handle God's word directly? Or do I have all these preconceived notions that I want to see in Scripture? And if I don't see it or if I don't hear it from my pastor, I'm going to get angry and have a hissy fit. The name of the game in myself, for myself, too, is what does the Word of God say? And so we're a community that, what, needs correction, that needs rebuke, and needs being, what, built up and training in righteousness. And the second question I want to ask you is what kind of tools are you using Okay, I remember going to a Bible study and they're like looking up the Oxford Dictionary for these keywords. I'm like, you know, there are better dictionaries than Oxford. That's great for your you know, essay, for your public school or whatever. But there are better dictionaries and you can have them at the tip of your Bible app. Arm yourself with good tools so what? You can have solid interpretations. Good stuff, my friends. It's kind of a weird sermon. Next week, in the beginning, God... We'll look at a lot of Bible passages, and I want you to see how great, how marvelous, how amazing the God of the Bible is. And my hope is that you'll be blown away, and you'll realize that our God is more amazing than 
the special effects of Matrix or whatever you like to watch or whatever.